Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., today we're going to talk about the fact that if you want to scale your company, yeah. in fact, if you want to grow as a leader, at all. in fact, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to have greater impact on the world around you, yes. You must stop micromanaging. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's very true. And you know who I'm talking to. You're sitting in your car, you're driving, you're the only one nope, we recorded totally this for. I'm totally looking up in the air right now. I'm looking to my right, my left. You think left. I've been bad at this? No, not at all, actually. Not really a micromanager. No, you're not at all. <laughs> yeah. You're not at all a micromanager. But here's my problem, though, and it's a similar problem. And you know, our guest is going to talk about this. Yeah. I go around people in order to get things done faster. Just go fast, yeah. That's what we're talking about this episode. Yeah. Wanda Wallace is with us. She wrote a book called You Can't Know It All, mm-hmm. and it's about this thing. And I'm telling you, this morning, I dealt with this. Yeah. I got here at 8 a.m. For some reason, I was locked out of the office. <laughs> There's a deadbolt that <laughs> I didn't know existed. For some reason. <laughs> but I get here all the time. I use the yeah. code, Yeah. and I get in, and this morning, the deadbolt was like, so I'm pacing around the parking lot for an hour. Uh-huh. The reality is, we are currently in the tension at StoryBrand, yeah. and it seems like we have to go through it every year, a new iteration of that tension, yeah. where I want to go around people to get things done, rather than go to them and trust the processes. Yeah. And then here's the other thing, realize... If the processes don't work, the processes are broken and need to be fixed. But the answer, if I keep going around them, that will work. And your company will cap at $15 million and it will never get past that. Because the part of it is, is you know what needs to be done, but we're adding new people all the time. And they don't know what you know. Yeah. And so if you keep all that information to yourself, then... There's a certain cap that you have, but once you are able to give yeah, that knowledge to, to somebody think else, think about how we're doing things. Yeah, differently, and it will be a little bit different than what, how you do it. Yeah. You know, that's ultimately another piece of that growth is it's going to be just a little bit different. Yeah. But when you teach them that knowledge, now all of a sudden you are multiplied, and your business has a whole new level of growth. Yeah, I, it, it amazes me when you look at somebody like Elon Musk, who's really, you know, basically the principal guy in three different operations. Yeah. And how much trust he must have in people. And then you hear these stories about Steve Jobs, who will call somebody at three in the morning. Yeah. Literally call somebody who's, who he's never talked to at all at three in the morning and say, there's a misspelled word on the Bob Dylan page yeah. on iTunes. <laughs> Fix it now. Yeah. You know, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> he was famous yeah. for that yeah. stuff. So uh, he didn't listen <laughs> to this interview. <laughs> that kind of, that's what I tell myself every time I do something stupid. Like, well, Steve Jobs would have done it. <laughs> But realistically, you know, that's not true. He had yeah. to have processes and all this kind yeah. of stuff in order for things to scale. We've had, this is a theme because we had Les McEwen on. Uh-huh. Uh, Wanda Wallace is saying something similar. They're all yeah. talking about, and I feel like, I, you know, I don't mean to be all religious. I feel like God is saying, dude, Pay I'm attention. going to need you to <laughs> learn to scale. <laughs> you, yeah. you keep telling me you want to scale and then you don't do what I'm asking you yeah. to do. So you get another interview, <laughs> another expert. That's pretty much how it feels. And uh, I don't want to feel alone in this. So if you are with me on uh, having to you know, stop doing this to your people and teach them to think, yeah, you know, the rewards are enormous. Yeah. You, get, you get a big company out of it. You get a, to, to impact the world in a bigger way. And it's ultimately where your heart is, right? So it's not even yeah. like, like this is fighting leaders. against who you are. It's just learning a new way of doing it. And yeah. so, and I think for most people would say the same thing. Do you want to invest and build up other people? And most people would go, yes. 
but then we don't do it because it becomes easier Especially to keep that those, information ourselves. Especially those, you know, a lot of us, I bet you 50% of the people who run companies or who whatever, they're Enneagram 3s or Enneagram 8s. And only 50%, but the other 50% are scattered throughout. But what makes it work is we're driven people, goal-oriented, task-oriented. Yeah. And so I can't be satisfied until that vision comes to life. And if I go to you twice and you don't get it right, I'm going to go around you. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. It's not twice and you don't get it right. It's 23 times because people are having to change the way they think or approach something. Yeah. And if you lack patience, then you lack the ability to scale. Yep. Imagine I was just thinking, you know, we, we worked with Mark Miller from Chick-fil-A the other day. Mm-hmm. And Mark came in. I was just thinking they open stores, you know, I don't know, maybe every day, certainly every other day they're opening a store. The process of figuring out how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> My, Betsy and I are building a house. We're 18 months into building this house. They built a Chick-fil-A down the street in three months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they knocked down a crystal and a Chick-fil-A was there in three months and opened two weeks later. Yeah. You can't do that with one visionary leader who goes around people and micromanages. Yeah. It does not happen. Nope. You do not hit $10 billion doing that. So this is a huge lesson for all of us. Yeah. And you're learning and I'm learning. We're together on this. I'm definitely not the guide. I'm the hero in the sense that <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm unwilling to take action in yeah. everything that a yeah. hero is. <laughs> the everything a hero is in the story. Yeah. 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 Everything a hero actually is yeah. in the story. Uh, belligerent. <laughs> on and on. Anyway, Wanda Wallace is brilliant. Her book, again, is called You Can't Know It All. And again, you know, the whole shtick of this podcast is Don Miller gets free consulting. <laughs> and this is this is more of it. Here's my conversation with Wanda Wallace. Dr. Wallace, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk to me about what's going on because the culture is shifting so quickly. How is our leadership failing? So let me put a context on this one so you understand why what I'm saying. And it's not so much as leadership is failing as it's misdirected. Gotcha. So with regulatory controls, with consumer activism, with social media, we want to put experts in charge of everything Hmm. because I want a safe pair of hands. I want to know somebody's on top of it. They can make it happen. They can execute it. There are going to be no surprises on my watch. I want risk controlled. Expertise equals competency equals mitigating risk. Equals reliability and credibility. And all the stuff that we talk about with trust starts with that notion of reliability and credibility. I have been there and done that. And therefore, I'm going to know as much as anybody knows in this space. Granted, no one may know, but you can be sure it's not because I wasn't competent. I've got the competence. And that's what intuition is telling us to do. Right. But you're saying that there's some downfalls with that. Well, and that works for lots of ways. I mean, it's if I'm CEO of the company, I like knowing that my person who's finance has seen everything there is to see in finance hmm. and can handle every problem there is. Yeah. However... Most normal human beings can't do that. So what happens is we learn to lead as an expert and we learn to get troops to follow us because largely we know more than they know. And that sets up a whole pattern of how we interact and what's expected of us. But inevitably, at some point in the career, we start picking up additional stuff and we reach the human capacity either from time or just mental capability to learn the expertise deep level of the things that we're now leading. And now I'm leading a group of people where my team fundamentally knows a lot more than I do. Mm. And the question comes, 
Why should they follow me? Well, yeah, and if you've if you've set it up of I'm the expert and that's why you should follow me rather than I'm the leader coordinating this conversation of group learning and group progress. Is that the big paradigm shift? That's or? the big paradox. That's exactly what's happened. We have more and more and more expert leaders, and they're higher and higher in the organization all the way to the C-suite. It strikes me that un- under your model and the way you're thinking about this, you're talking about a whole new kind of leader, maybe even a whole new kind of person who's going to be chosen as leader, rather than the old model of, I don't admit my mistakes, I need to pretend I'm the expert when I'm not the expert. I'm, That kind of thing. Well, that stuff is not new. We've been talking about it for a while. What I think is new is the fact that you're never going to give up your expertise. You have that as a calling card, as a base. What's new is I'm going to be the expert sometimes and not the expert the other time. And how do I learn to balance between those two extremes, get it right, and at the one time I can say, yes, I know the answer. This is where it goes. And another time I have to say, I don't know. What do you think? and trust that team, and get the best out of that team, it's two fundamental different ways of leading, and we ask for it in the same person. Well, there are three things that you recommend in your book, and the first is understand that a leader needs to understand how they add value. And the book, very comforting title, You Can't Know It All. <laughs> right, that's absolutely right. You can't. There's some point at which you won't know it all. All right, so can I do this by way of story? Please. Because I was just talking with a guy that I've known for years, and he started out his life as a lawyer, and he went on to head a global function for his company, and he has now been thrown into a very interesting sales role. He has zero experience in sales. Zero. Yeah. He's got a lot of company knowledge and a lot of networks, but zero. And his fundamental question is question number one. How the heck am I supposed to add value to this team who are all sales experts? I can't fake it because they all know I know nothing about sales. And the team is all sitting there going, so I wonder who you got to know in order to get this job. Hmm. So his first question is, how do I add value? And the answer for him is going to fundamentally come down to his ability to introduce his team to the broader network in his company and use those resources to help the team solve problems they can't solve on their own. You know, it's very interesting because I, I was working with a, about a $10 billion company, very big company, and they had somebody who I would consider borderline genius in their marketing department who was overlooked for the chief marketing officer position, and they brought in somebody who headed a tech division. And I remember thinking, this is an enormous mistake. That, well, how could you overlook this genius until I got together with the entire team and I realized the genius was coming up with wonderful creative ideas. They were still on the team. But the tech guy who had been chosen as CMO was really good at sort of making decisions. So they didn't actually have an expertise in the very department they were leading. What they were good at is coordinating a conversation, pulling the best out of people, and actually making a decision. And then I thought, that was a genius move. Is, is that the sort of leadership structure that you're talking about? And I am seeing it everywhere coming and going. So the team that inherits the tech is the CMO is wondering why him yeah. until, you know, you get into it and you realize, wow, they really have something to add. Yeah. And then the person who's in the role has to understand what their job is because it is not about being the expert in, the tech, in that area. It's fundamentally about orchestrating conversations, opening doors, using your network, pulling the best out of people. And that's where we get to this interaction. 
you have to change the way you interact with people. Yeah. Well, that's part three. I want to talk about part two first. Part one was understand how you add value and be able to articulate it. So for me as the leader of StoryBand, it's it's vision, it's strategy. I'm not a big execution guy. I have to staff that around me. I'm always two or three years out. You're always executing today. But understanding that that's how I add value. Can you just give us a, a few little areas of this is valuable if you're wired like this. This is valuable if you're wired like this so that people feel affirmed in that. Okay, so um, if you're a detail-oriented person, it's going to be a tiny bit harder for you because you're going to want to know all the details before you're comfortable with it. So that one's going to be hard for you. You're going to have to get out of that detailed knowledge, trust the gut, trust the bigger picture, and go with the bigger picture. You fundamentally add value because you can open your Rolodex, your network, to solve problems for the team. So that's the piece that I talked about at the very beginning. You add value because you can actually talk to people in your group about where they're going, what they're doing, where their career is going. You become a coaching manager, not a training manager, not an instruction manager, not a decision-making manager. You're the one who's orchestrating the conversations that let people decide for themselves. Hmm. And you add value by knitting that team together so that your really strong expert can speak well to somebody who's an expert in a completely different area. They connect and they get it. They talk. That's where the joy of great team performance comes from. And that's your job. That's how you add value. I love it. There was a big paradigm shift for me maybe a year ago. And it it also was a paradigm shift that came with the evolution of my company as we've grown and put in more people. That when the company started, it was my brain trying to be executed by a few other people. And the shift to me went, okay, it's no longer your brain. It is a collective brain that you get to sort of coordinate and point in direction. But it is a – I don't have the full brain anymore. Tim, my COO is my left brain. Then I've got these people over here doing this. And it's from your brain to a whole brain kind of management. And I I think what you're really talking about here is humility. Yeah, it has to be part of it. It If you don't have a little bit of humility, you're going to struggle with this one terribly. But, you know, you said earlier, part of what you do is you add value by strategy. Well, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I don't have to be the one who has the strategic direction. I have to understand where where opportunities are, what we could tap, where the resources are to get there. But I can get my team together, and collectively, we can actually beat the strategy of any one person all on their own. Ooh, that's so, so even that for that so one, good. Yeah. I'm pulling them together. Yeah. I imagine you say to a lot of leaders in your consulting business, tell me about your team meeting on this. And then the other person says, uh, we have not had a team meeting on this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so one, know how you add value. I'm very curious about number two, which is know how to get the right work done. I'm really drawn to the phrase, the right work. Can you help us define what is the right work that we <laughs> Yeah, it's two sides. What's the right work for me and what's the right work for my team and gotcha. how do I know it's right? I'm not okay. the expert. I can't double check anymore. Yeah. I can't look at that report or that analysis and know you did the right thing. So how do I know if you're doing the right thing? That is the big question, especially when my entire career has been around managing mistakes and risks. Mm. So now mm, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if I can't do the work, because I'm not the doer and executor anymore. What the heck is it that I'm supposed to be doing instead? Yeah. Boy, we've had the, I mean, I feel like you're a fly on the wall in our conference room as we grow <laughs> because we're getting to the point where it's like, okay, what does so and so do again? And, you know, <laughs> we don't know. And we're trying to get more comfortable with saying, we'll find out, right? Rather than, because you used to be able to know everything. When you say the right work, 
is there an algorithm that you use? When I think about the right work, I think um, what is the most profitable thing for this person to be working on? Where does that intersect with their gifting and ability and what lights them up? I'm thinking about those things, right? Yeah, I think about it in terms of priorities. What's the most important thing for us to be focused on collectively as a team in order to get where we want to go? And get where we want to go may be immediately profits, and it actually may be something else, depending upon where we're sitting in the organization or what we're trying to achieve in that period right. of time. So it's down to, it's that old urgent importance matrix. You know, what's the yeah, important yeah. stuff that we really need to do, not just the urgent? And how do I make sure people are focused on the one or two things and understand what those are and not lose line of sight of them? Because we all know there's more to do than any human being can do in any organization anywhere. So it's yeah. a matter of setting, getting focus, keeping that focus. And that's part of what the job is when you're not the expert leader. Do you ever go into a team and, you know, in analyzing a team, spending time with a team, say, okay, I really love Jane here, but Jane is not, it's obvious she's not doing what she really should be doing. She should be over here, and this person should be over here. You remind me just metaphorically of a, of a great basketball coach, right? Like, you should be <laughs> rebounding. You should be shooting. The, why are you in the paint? Get out of here. Go over there and shoot the ball. I actually have a very different view. Okay. I personally believe if the team is really strong together and they've learned to talk together collectively, Jane and Alice are going to figure out they're not doing the right kind of job and they should swap pieces of it. Or at least they should support each other to develop each other. You like for them to figure out themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, it goes back to that one brain thing. It's back to orchestrating that conversation. And that's what you're doing as this non-expert leader, spanning leader, I call I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Wanda Wallace in just a moment. But first, let me tell you one of the reasons your marketing message isn't working. And it's not just your marketing message. It's your speeches. It's the talk that you give right before a company meeting. There's one reason that it's probably not working, and it's this. You haven't defined the controlling idea. What is the controlling idea behind this marketing message? Is it that we're having a 10% off sale? Is it that we have new inventory? Is it that we have a new feature that we're rolling out that you haven't heard before? There can only be one idea, and that's it. I was just working with a, a C-suite member of a $10 billion brand recently, and they showed me a video that they were rolling out to their team. Three minutes in, they had already introduced nine different ideas in this video. Nine different ideas. That doesn't work. Here's some of the best advice that I've ever heard about writing and communicating. It's from David Mamet, who won a Pulitzer Prize as a playwright. He said this, you always have to support the punchline. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, let me tell you a joke. Why did the elephant paint his toenails red? So he could hide in the cherry tree. Okay, not a very funny joke, but that's because you're not seven years old. That kills in elementary schools. But let me ruin that joke for you. Why did the sub-Saharan elephant who got exported to San Diego and worked with a trainer at a zoo, the trainer's name was Jane, paint his toenails red so he could hide in the cherry tree? Now, anybody who hears that joke is wondering, okay, why did I have to know he was sub-Saharan? Why did I have to know the trainer's name was Jane? Why did I have to go? You added a bunch of stuff to the joke that doesn't support the punchline, which ruins the joke. Think about that in regards to your controlling idea. If you're writing a marketing message, a marketing email, or creating a website, there's one controlling idea. I can save you money, we're rolling out new inventory, all the things I said before. You can't have any other ideas that don't support that idea in each piece of marketing, or you will lose the audience. If you're giving a speech, there is one controlling idea. Every other idea has to support the one main idea. 
before a meeting, you have to say the controlling idea of this meeting is to, to deliver this by the end of it, and everything needs to support that. That way you know when you're off topic. And when you're off topic, you are going to lose people. The reason I tell you all of that is because I wanted to give you a free piece of advice. Now, here's why I wanted to give you a free piece of advice, because every day I do this, literally every weekday, I send a video to now thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who signed up with a bit of advice just like that. If you want to be coached and developed and get a piece of business wisdom every day, go to businessmadesimple.com and I'll give you something like I just gave you every single day. Just go to businessmadesimple.com, put in your email address, tell us where to send the video, and I will send it to you every weekday. What will your life look like if you get a daily piece of business wisdom every single day? How many less mistakes will you make? How much more money will you make? How many more promotions will you get? If you get a piece of wisdom every day, don't miss out. Go to businessmadesimple.com. Number three, they've got to know how to interact with people. Yeah. So got to get the best out of people. And they're not yeah. all going to think the way I think because they're not all the logical or analytical or trained in the technical area the way I think. And I've got to interact with people across the organization. All sorts of personalities. Some I quite honestly don't like, but I still <laughs> have to be able to get along with them and get the best out of them. Yeah. Now, in the past, when I'm an expert leader, I can win the argument because fundamentally, at the end of the day, I say, I'm right. right. Here's the answer. When I'm not the expert leader, I cannot do that anymore. I'm not going to persuade people to go my direction because of the logic or the analysis. I'm going to persuade them because of the human element. Hmm. And if I don't have executive presence, you are dead in the water. Am I reading into your journey that you had to learn this, that this was, this was something that... I'm not that, sure. Because <laughs> you talked, <laughs> you sure. said you're... I have you're an, learned it. <laughs> well, you said you're an analytical leader. Did you have to learn some people skills? Uh, oh, you always learn people skills. This is not my personal journey. This is coaching a bunch of clients right. and watching them get that great new job and struggle like mad. Hmm. People who've been brilliant leaders and suddenly are floundering. And when you start to look at what's going wrong, it's really their inability to get stuff out of other people, to leverage hmm. other people, yeah. to win people over with the argument that is not just right it's got all that other human element we know works so well in persuasion. Well, talk to me about this type A driven analytical leader who, you know, we're all picturing sort of a robot. Let's go to an extreme example. But what do you tell them about improving the human element? How do you coach them through that? What do you specifically tell them to do? What I like to do is to get them focused on a person that they really want to win over. Ah. And they've not succeeded at it with their logical, analytical, correct approach. Okay. And I get them to understand what is it about that person. Can you give us an example of like something, a little transformation? Just uh, hypothetically. Hundreds of them. <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can pick out uh -huh. one. Well, there's one particular story in the book I tell Carl. Okay. Right? Carl is a neuroscientist. Fabulous neuroscientist. Knows the area brilliantly. Well-connected around the world. You go to a conference and people would say how amazing he is and how much they love him. So long as he's talking to people who know neuroscience because he speaks the language of neuroscience. Mm -hmm. The problem is he's in a position of trying to convince his executive team to bring on some new talent or to explore a new area in science because he thinks there's an opportunity there. And they're having none of it. Because the only thing he can do is bring the logical scientific analysis. His turning point 
was learning the language that the executive team speaks and what kind of stories are going to work for them. And I'll give you an example. Coming in with a story about um, a patient problem and a sample of a patient that we can now show and say and say there's no solution for this patient, but there's probably an answer if we start looking in this space of neuroscience. Hmm. That's a human story that is absolutely converted. And so you get Carl over the line by helping him understand what he's doing isn't going to work, hasn't worked and isn't working, won't work. (laughs) Let's try a new way. And I steal a page from you. It's about telling the human story. That's where the emotion comes from. Yeah, we talk about external, internal, and philosophical problems. And one of the things we say in our marketing advice is, Companies try to sell solutions to external problems, but nobody buys that. They buy solutions to the frustrations that those external problems are causing. And if you can speak to their heart in some way, you're going to get far. All right, I want to close with the big idea from your book. It's the difference between an expert leader and a spanning leader. Again, the book is You Can't Know It All, probably very comforting for some of us who really think we have to have our everything together in order to lead. You don't. Can you talk to me about what the difference between an expert leader and a spanning leader, and specifically... What is a spanning leader? How do you define that? Because that sounds like an aspirational identity for all of us. All right. So spanning is when I'm leading across areas where I'm not the expert in those areas. And we all, we just all have to do that now. We, we have to do that all the time. And what I want you to understand is for most people in the bulk of their career, it's a hybrid role. Mm. One part expert, one part spanner. And not try to mix them up. You will still have moments when you get drug into the weeds of your area of expertise. Like there's a problem in the IT, you're going to get drug back in to fix it. But you don't want to stay there. You want to come back up from that and be able to look across the horizon and pull the best of people that are around you to solve bigger level problems. Yeah. So hybrid is the secret word. It's a combination of both. And over the course of your career, the proportion will change. There will be, you know, 80% expertise, 20% spanning, and then at other times it'll flip the opposite. It'll be 20% expertise and 80% spanning, just depending upon the role you're in and what's needed at that moment. You know, when I think about leadership, I always go to the role of president. And I think about Obama being, I mean, he was a scholar, essentially. He was a professor type, if you will. And he would sort of micromanage different things. He was a ferocious reader, read every night, read all his reports. Compared to Trump, and I know that's a controversial figure to talk about, but I'm, I'm really just talking about leadership style, where Trump is sort of winging it. And as Notre Dame Burns is tweeting out that they should send airplanes to drop water on the cathedral, and they tweet back, that would destroy the cathedral. You know, What do you see? Is that a spanning leader? Because he's clearly going... He's Or is he somebody who needs to be an expert in every area? Give me the right formula for somebody who has a job that is that intense. You know, if I were the president, I would say, here's what I'm good at. I'm really good at messaging and I'm really good at strategy. Find me the smartest people on everything that I'm not good at because I'm also good at making decisions. But it seems like there's some other styles that may be more antiquated where they really feel like they have to demonstrate they're the expert on everything, including solving problems. Yeah, and I have to make a fast decision. I'm going to make a decision out of my gut without talking to anybody or hearing anything about anybody. And I have the answer and everybody just listened to me. And you see a bit of that in Trump's statement about Notre Dame. 
I know better than anybody else, regardless of what I know. So as a spanning leader, what you're doing is you're making sure you have access to the experts who do know. Mm. And you have the humility to say, which I should say, he also does that. I mean, I've heard reports when the Pentagon calls and says, do you want us to bomb this and that? And he literally just turns around and says, do you honestly think I know more than you do? Please do what you need to do in order to achieve these objectives. You know, I hear both stories. Yeah. The danger with any Hispanic leader is that you listen only to the voices you want to hear from. Uh. And that you don't hear this broad range of voices from this broad range of personalities. So you're going to miss part of the information you need to know. You will make bad decisions. I don't want to reduce it to binary, but are the same people who can listen to a, a myriad of input are they not the same people who can actually make a decision? Because sometimes those seem like two different people to me. <laughs> well, they don't have to be. I've seen people, I've seen leaders who are very good at listening to all-day meetings, can synthesize it down to the nub of exactly what it was. There's three issues here, one, two, three, and then are perfectly fine is saying, looks like we should go ahead with number one. Yeah. Very good at that. I've seen them. They do exist. Um, I'm not close enough to Trump or Obama to know if either of them fall in that category, so I'll abstain from saying that. Smart. But it is possible. <laughs> it's a learned skill. Well, that's hopeful to know that it is possible. Dr. Wanda Wallace, thank you for joining us today. The book is called You Can't Know It All. My takeaway from this are get a little bit of humility, try to collect one brain in my organization. If there's a convicting thing for me, it's I came into this conversation thinking I would be the best strategist. And I've assumed that, which has stopped me from getting a group of people together saying, let's get a strategy on this. A lot to learn here. You've been a great help. Thank you for joining us all the way from London today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, JJ, here's how I apply this. And uh, this has just happened in the last few days. Betsy and I are building a new house. There's a studio in that house. There's a studio in the current office, Mailer House, which basically means we get some digital cameras and a computer and we film things there. These Business Made Simple videos, a lot of them are filmed in the studio. We're building a new house. I need to make a studio. Last studio that I made, I just hired a company out of Oregon. They came in. They put a digital studio in my house, and it worked really great. That was a year ago. Since then, we've hired two people to our digital and video team. Mm-hmm. So when it came time to make this new studio, I just said, okay, find me somebody to make a studio. We're making a studio. And then I got word up the ranks, um, these guys are wondering why you went around them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I didn't. What I was thinking was, this is a waste of their time. I've already done this once. I'll do it again. Yeah. And instead, what had happened in that year was we had created processes. Yeah. And I was ignoring those processes and going around them. Yeah. It's so tempting because that's just the way that you do things. And the thing that I have to remember is, look, at how big do you want this company to get? Because every time you do that, you're limiting the growth of the company. Wanda Wallace is right. Yeah. The the book is right. And my friend Doug Kime told me, look, your company's 10 million. It's going to 100 million. Nobody will be in the room at 100 million who was there when it was 10 million. Yeah. And what he meant by that was not that nobody would be in the room. He literally meant every single person is going to have to change. You're going to have to develop new skills. And I don't think he was talking about my team because he doesn't know my team. I think he was talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> he was like looking right at you with big yeah. eyes. Yeah. Yeah. It basically, he was saying, you're coming to go at 100 million right after you sell it. Well, it's like parenting, right? You parent a toddler different than a preteen versus a teen versus when they're in college. And yeah. even just from, say, that information base, right? The know it all piece is my mother did my laundry when I was little, right? Right. <laughs> well, as there are then four children, in our family as we get bigger, 
at some point she had to teach me or she wanted to teach me at least how to do my own laundry. Right. Did I do the laundry the same way she did? No. <laughs> I put yeah, my whites and my different. colors together because I wanted it done quicker. But if she wanted to keep doing all this laundry, she's capped with her time and energy. But by teaching me and my brother and subsequently my other brother and sister how to do our own laundry and how to make our own beds – we then were able to, as a family, accomplish more in the day than if my mom just kept all that information to herself. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Some of us started a company, and it's like bringing an infant into the world. You're cutting up their food. You're mashing it up. You're doing whatever. Not with an infant, obviously, but with a toddler. <laughs> and the company is now in college, and yeah. we're sitting there cutting up every person's food. Yeah. And ultimately, you just that's not going to work. Yeah. And you attract people who don't think. Yeah. And you don't teach them to think. And that's bad for their careers. You're now not developing them and turning them into leaders. So, oh, gosh. (laughs) More lessons for us to learn. Uh, But they're very good lessons, and, uh, you know, we're all in this together. You know, a year from now, my key word, my word for the year Uh is transform. Mm. And literally, when Doug said that to me, he said it to me last year, and I thought, I've got to change. So I made the theme of this year to transform, to be just completely different at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. And uh, this is a good reminder here at the end of the first trimester (laughs) of 2019. (laughs) And uh, one of the things i got to do is stop micromanaging. So hopefully this was super helpful to you. Once again, the book is called You Can't Know It All. Wanda Wallace, thanks for joining us. Next week on the podcast is Ken Coleman. Ken's an old friend, and I love him. We have a terrific conversation. He's got a book out called The Proximity Principle. He actually argues that the key characteristic of success, if you look back on your life, is not anything that you do necessarily. It's who you get close to. It's the most obvious idea in the world, and we completely overlook it. Here's a little clip of my conversation with Ken Coleman. A, they saw something in you, so kudos to them. But they saw something beyond potential. They saw, here's a kid who's happy to be around and and genuinely is excited to be around me, and, and I think that there's some hunger here. And when we show up, and we sit around men and women who are doing what we want to do, who we look up to, and we start with humility, and we start with hunger, and we show a desire to learn from them, that's the value. I get this question all the time, Doc. Well, how do, I, how do I connect with somebody? And I can't offer them anything. Not true. The number one thing that any human being can offer another human is to feel valued. All right, don't miss that. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, go to wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Subscribe today. That way it comes to you automatically. I know how it works. You get like six or 10 of them in your backlog. Then you got a road trip. Then you can catch up on all of them. I swear it's like an MBA. You're you're driving around. You're just developing yourself every time you listen to this podcast. And we are grateful. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy. And creating a clear message is the best way to do laundry.